streets paved with gold Lifted some stones, saw the skin and bones Of a city without a soul I stopped outside a church house Where the citizens like to sit They say they want the kingdom But they don't want God in it Yeah, I went with nothing Nothing but the thought of you I went wandering from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. And I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you have family or friends who can't watch Heart of the Matter on television, have them go to www.hotm.tv, and they can watch through streaming video from anywhere in the world. We also have uh, archived shows that you might enjoy by going to the same site, HOTM. TV. I was a born-again Mormon. It's a, a support book that we use for the ministry. It's available free or by donation, however you want to do it, at hotm.tv as well. You go to PDF or uh, get the book. You download it. It comes to you. It's in your hands in seconds. It's a much more economical way for us to get it to you quickly and at a much less cost. Um, are you involved in anything meaningful or exciting or creative that's aimed at helping and doing good in Jesus' name? This Saturday, we're holding our first meeting for volunteers for our up-and-coming television program, The Gray Generation. Become part of a ground floor experience with this unique outreach to America's teens. We have a need for telephone operators, runners, graphics people, camera people, studio people, hair and makeup, that's always a joke, you understand. Um, uh, we just need, we need about 30 volunteers in total. It's gonna be exciting. The show will air on Saturday, October 31st. That's Halloween at 10.30 p.m. So if your bedtime is earlier, earlier than that, you may not wanna come. Otherwise, all committed volunteers, teens or adults are welcome. Now just take a minute and watch the show's opener to give you a feel of where we're headed with the program.
We're going to go after the cultural predators who go after our teens and youth and give them these twisted uh, ideologies about what life is about using God's word and just sharing. We're going to have musical guests. We have a great segment called Toad. We have all kinds of things to look forward to. So please join us. But volunteer meeting this Saturday, 11 a.m. here at the studios, 314 South Redwood Road. Go to www.thegreatgeneration.tv for more information. Several weeks ago, we had a young woman call who uh, was involved in the FLDS, the Fundamental LDS Church. That meant, means polygamy. And she told us on the air that she was, in a week, going to become the plural wife of uh, a man who already had one wife. I recently learned through a phone conversation from where she telephoned from that she did not go through the plan to marry uh, this guy, um, but instead is stepping back and examining the whole matter. Pray for her. She gave us a fictitious name, so let's just call her Emma. Uh, that's the name we're going to use. Pray for Emma. Last week, we finished our examination of Joseph Smith's so-called revelation on plural marriage, known as Doctrine and Covenants 132. In that revelation, Joseph had God state that Sarah of the Old Testament was justified in having her husband Abraham take Hagar, her handmaiden, to be one of his wife so that he could produce children through her and fulfill God's promise. God's promise that Abraham's seed would be proliferated throughout the world. The biblical reason, my friends, is that Abraham and Sarah ought to, should have, waited on God to make good on his promise, but instead they took matters into their own hands. This is a great picture for all of the decisions we make as Christians. Do we wait on the Lord or do we take matters into our own hands? Mormonism, because of their theological model relative to the fall, preexistence, and salvation by grace and works, tacitly says opposite of what the lesson would be, with Joseph actually saying that God justified Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar and their decision. Using this very event of Abraham and Hagar in an allegory, Paul in the book of Galatians compares Abraham's union with Hagar as an act of the flesh representing the law, but the production of um, Isaac, which was what God had promised, as a work of the spirit, which is founded in liberty. Furthermore, Paul goes on in Galatians 4 and compares the literal birth and existence of Ishmael as representing the flesh, which wars against the literal birth and existence of Isaac, who represents spirit. Paul wrote in verse 29, But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so even is it now. By using this specific story out of the scripture, Paul is saying several important things that we can learn, all of which fly in the face of LDS teachings, beliefs, and doctrines relative to Abraham. First, he makes the point that Abraham's polygamous choice did not originate from God, but from the flesh side of man. Okay? Second, he points out that such decisions ended up afflicting the children of Israel, 
not helping them, just as Ishmael and his progeny have ended up afflicting Isaac and his progeny even to this very day. It wasn't a beneficial thing that resulted from Abraham and Sarah making this fleshly decision. It was a negative thing to the children of Israel even to this day. Third, Paul tells us through scripture and citing the allegory, what to do when we have created problems for ourselves by choosing to act through the flesh. Again, he infers that our actions ought to replicate Abraham and Sarah's actions toward Hagar. Listen to what he says. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Think on this concept a while. It's deep, but it's yet another uh, indicator of how Mormonism contrasts with biblical truth. You know, I want to take just a second and talk to you, if I can, about the Bible. Lately, I've been moved, I believe, to uh, talk about its power, its reliability, and its importance in the life of a believer. The Bible is trustworthy. You can rest entirely on its contents. It is living, it's true, and good, and powerful. It is from God's mouth to our ears, and God takes his word very seriously. In Psalms 138, chapter 2, I mean verse 2, God says he has, quote, magnified his word above all his name. So powerful, so reliable, so trustworthy is God's word that when Jesus was approached by Satan in the wilderness, Jesus himself cited it three times, saying, it is written in response to Satan. And then he quoted from the scripture that was just as old to him in his day, as far as translations and age, as the New Testament was to the body of Christ once the church was uh, uh, formulated. So it is written, it is trustworthy, it is reliable, it's from the mouth of God. Now every single man-made religion or man-woman-made uh, religion uh, that has sought to introduce their own concepts and idea over the Bible has always attacked the Bible and, uh, as reliable. Uh, they say you cannot trust it. They say it's been translated wrongly. They say it needs to be altered. It needs to be, uh, parts need to be removed. Parts need to be discounted or it needs to be added onto to make it better. Where did the Bible contents originate? Who were the authors? It came from those who wrote the inspired, that means God-breathed, words before Christ and then as witnesses of Christ. All of it was about Jesus. Old Testament prophets writing things that they didn't even know what it meant about this coming Jesus. New Testament prophets, these were the apostles who were first-hand witnesses of Jesus, who were also moved by the Holy Spirit to write what he told them to write. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul describes the church as a building made up of believers. And speaking to these individual believers, beginning in verse 19, he says, Now, therefore, talking to them, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. What does the household of God look like? Well, Let's first look at the foundation of this household. Paul says that the believers who actually make up the frame of this building, this is what he says to them. They are 
verse 20, built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The prophets are those who foretold in writing of Jesus, and the apostles are those who witnessed in writing of him. This is the foundation of the, his church. It was laid by inspired witnesses of Jesus, old and new, who wrote. We are not prophets and apostles with a capital P or a capital A, but when we read or cite the words that they wrote, we stand on the very same authority with which they once wrote and spoke. Their words are our foundation, with Jesus Christ, also known as the Word, being the chief cornerstone. Paul goes on now, and speaking of believers, says, In whom all the building, fitly framed together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord. Meaning that the believers are framed together, and as believers, we are fit like boards of a frame of a, of a house. We are fit together and we make, believers make, the holy temple of the Lord. And what purpose do we believers serve as these boards as of the frame of God's church? Listen to what he says in verse 22, final verse. In whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. What he's saying there is that as believers, we are the living receptacles in where God dwells. In the tabernacle, in the temple of old, God dwelled in the Holy of Holies. Today, because of Christ's blood, he dwells in the hearts of believers, not in temples made with hands, not of temples made with stone, but in believers who form the framework of the building upon which we call God's household. When someone comes along and says, I am a prophet, I am an apostle, we can compare what these prophets and apostles claim with what our foundation claims is as truth. In this way, we can discern who are liars, who are deceivers, and who are not telling us the truth. Where Joseph Smith said and quoted in Church History 5.425, quote, there are many things in the Bible which do not, as they now stand accord with the revelations of the Holy Ghost to me, and Neil A. Maxwell, a man who called himself an apostle, said, By faulty transmission, many plain and precious things were taken away and kept back from reaching later composed uh, in our Bible. Any Christian can firmly stand, stand, stand side by side with Jesus Christ when confronted with the lies of these apostles and prophets, so-called, and say, It is written. And with that, let's have a prayer. Lord, we need you in our lives. We uh, plead for your spirit to be with those who are seeking truth, for those who are passing by, for those in our live audience, in our viewing audience throughout the state, other states, this nation, this world. We love and praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me speak plainly as I can, and I hope you can hear what is going to be said. Mormonism teaches that if a law is going to be considered true, reliable, and of God, remember, a law that is true, reliable, and of God, it cannot be temporary in nature. It has always existed and will always exist. Doctrine and Covenants, I believe 42, verifies this. 
Eternal laws are so important in Mormonism that even one of their article of faiths reads, listen to this article of faith. We believe that all mankind may be saved, listen to this, saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. That's how they say a person is saved. We just finished an examination of Doctrine and Covenants section 132 where Joseph Smith has God tell the world that this revelation is eternal and binding and that this revelation must be kept in order for men to become gods. The doctrine of polygamy was considered a true law, an eternal principle, and by virtue of this must be practiced according to Joseph Smith. Joseph wasn't alone in this teaching. LDS prophets who came after him were dogmatic in the belief that polygamy had to be practiced. Brigham Young, emphatic that it was an eternal law and even said that it must be entered into, quote, to become gods. John Taylor, third president of the LDS church, emphatic. The law of polygamy must be kept, he insisted, saying that the men and women who opposed it, quote, are on the high road to apostasy. Journal of Discourse 11.2.21. Speaking of polygamy, Taylor also said the United States cannot abolish it. It was handed down from God. No nation on earth can prevent it, nor all the nations of the earth combined. I defy the United States. I will obey God. Wilford Woodruff, even the fourth president of the Mormon, Mormon church said, quote, do away with polygamy, then we must do away with prophets and apostles, with revelation and the gifts and graces of the gospel, and finally give up our religion altogether and turn sectarians and do what the world does, then all would be all right. Well, we just can't do that. For God has commanded us to build up his kingdom and bear our testimony to the nations of the earth, and we are going to do it life or death. He has told us thus, and we shall obey him in days to come as in days past. Journal of Discourse 13166. In 1870, the Utah Saints living here sent a memorial to Congress describing plural marriage as, quote, a principle revealed by God underlying our every hope of eternal salvation and happiness in heaven. This is what the saints believed of the eternal law of uh, polygamy, a principle revealed by God that underlies our every hope of eternal salvation and happiness in heaven. Ten years later, Wilford Woodruff received a revelation that polygamy was, quote, absolutely essential to Godhood. This was the eternal law as evidenced by LDS doctrine. Well, today we have an altogether different take on this supposed eternal law. The spin can be downright comical to downright evil. Not knowing the command to practice it remains in uh, that, that the command to practice it is even in their own books of doctrine. Many LDS today act as if polygamy was something weirdo Mormons used to do and, and, uh, and that it was never really part, a big part of the true church with a few minor exceptions like Brigham Young. What they don't realize is the weirdo Mormons or the FLDS maintain a better picture of doctrinal Mormonism than the religion the Salt Lake LDS claimed to embrace. 
Other Latter-day Saints speak today of the practice as though, as though it was a temporary thing, like it was necessary for this specific time, or that um, very, very, very few select men were forced kind of to practice it. And as a means to diffuse the practice in this modern world and condemn those people who continue to practice it, 12th president of the LDS Church, Spencer W. Kimball, diminished this eternal law by calling it a church program. He called polygamy a church program. The spin is insidious. Listen, he said, quote, remember, the Lord put an end to this program many decades ago through a prophet who proclaimed that revelation to the world, end quote. So as that movie says, what we've got here is a failure to communicate and or some major obfuscations. There is so much spin and inconsistencies relative to this eternal law. Joseph Smith was emphatic. If the law comes from God, it is eternal, immutable, does not change, and we practice it come hell or high water. We have quotes from presidents uh, two, three, four, and even later, even Joseph F. Smith, that say polygamy is an eternal law. You must obey it to become God's, and suddenly things change. We have God tell Joseph, that it must be practiced. When did it end? How could it end? Has it even ended? In spite of the LDS claiming allegiance to underlying dedication to God's eternal law of polygamy, the United States government, beginning around 1866, began a number of attempts to end what they call the twin relic of barbarism, the first being slavery, the second being polygamy. The Wade Bill was introduced and defeated. Then came the Cragen Bill, the Ashley Bill, the Collum Bill, the Voorhees Bill, and the Logan Bill, none of which passed the House or the Senate to become law, but all of which raised the national consciousness about what was going on out in Utah, or what I call the lots of women for one orny man law. In 1880, U.S. President Rutherford B. Hayes articulated the nation's attitude toward Utah quite well when he said, quote, Utah is virtually under theocratic government of the Mormon church. The union of church and state is complete. The result is the usual one. Usurp, usurpation and absorption of all temporal authority and power by the church. He continued, listen, quote, laws must be enacted which will take from the Mormon church its temporal power. As a system of government, it is our duty to deal with it as an enemy of our institutions and its supporters and leaders as criminals. End. That's the president of the United States, Rutherford B. Hayes, when he looked at what Utah was doing with polygamy, this other relic of barbarism. This began what is called the Decade of Raids, 10-year period where United States officers hunted down practicers of LDS polygamists. In 1885, LDS President John Taylor and his two counselors had to go into hiding, and they, uh, two of them went hiding in Utah. Joseph F. Smith uh, hide, went and hid in Hawaii uh, because of their polygamous activities. Two years later, politicians came up with the Power Pact Edmonds-Tucker Act. Remember that, which it allowed wives for the first time in polygamous suits to actually testify against their husbands, which was not permitted before. It also made adultery a felony, and it hit the Mormon church where the Mormon church cannot stand to be hit in the pocketbook. 
The church was disincorporated by the federal government by the Edmunds Tucker Act and seizure of church estates valued at over $50,000 began. Add to the fact that the third president, John Taylor, died while in hiding and suddenly, lo and behold, the Mormons started to publicly deny the practice of polygamy. With Joseph Smith polygamy, it was a secret practice. With Brigham Young in the Utah Terry, it was open, it was mandatory, and they were so proud of it. But when the government turned up the heat, plural marriage went underground again, and spin became the operative word for the Latter-day Saints. Now, I need to say something before we go to the phones that's very important here. By pointing it out, I'm going to ruffle more feathers and probably be considered an even more hateful anti-Mormon than I already am. But when you're dealing with true believing uh, LDS and or defenders of the LDS faith, truth is secondary. Truth is even tertiary of an objective. And while this is very present at times in their business practices, uh, which is why Utah over the years has always been at the top of the heap as far as the states go in terms of scams, financial scams, uh, it, the fact is never more true than when you're in a discussion with people about God, the Bible, religion, and Mormon history. This is due to a few factors. First and foremost, Mormonism uh, started its life through a deceptive seed. Joseph Smith, the founder, used deceptive practices and methods throughout his life, whether in his treasure-seeking escapades, the story of the Book of Mormon origins, the famed Book of Abraham translations, the Kinderhook plates, and even dealing with his own wife, Emma, regarding his secret multiple wives. He was a deceiver. History shows that. I could not be taken to court for the statement if he was alive and well today. He was a deceiver. And from this seed, Mormonism sprung. Secondly, the LDS believed that they must protect the church at all costs. And since the church is an institution full of men, it will have faults. And faults need to be whitewashed if other people are going to embrace this institution. So Mormons will whitewash or cover the truth at all costs to keep people from knowing what its history and doctrines have been. Someone who has a relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the truth, had never has a need to lie. Because as the truth, he has no darkness or shadow in him. You never have to lie about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Mormonism has to hide and cover and duck and spin because it is not Jesus Christ they're defending. It is a man-made institution. In an effort to protect their practices from those who would not understand, Mormonism under the fire of the federal government began to do what they do best, and that's spin and hair split and deceive. One way they did this was by bifurcating the construction of the church, and let me explain that. At that time when the federal government was investigating whether they practiced polygamy, they found it not problematic or deceptive at all for the leaders of the church to say, as the leaders of the church, we denounce polygamy and do not practice it. What they don't tell you is they did not include the priesthood as part of the leadership. They viewed the priesthood as a separate part of the church. So they could in all good conscience say, the leaders of the Mormon church do not believe in polygamy, but the priesthood members do. And they, therefore they continued to practice it. It's a game of semantics. This is how the church leaders work. Let me tell you a true story. 
One brother Brown was asked about his views on plural marriage when he was under oath during a polygamous trial and they were choosing the jury. Well, this brother Brown was known by the US prosecutors as being a guy who was ardent LDS and a polygamist. And they asked him, do you, um, what do you think of polygamy? And brother Brown said he did not believe polygamy to be right. Okay, remember that. Brother Brown said under oath, I don't believe polygamy to be right. The, in the, the federal officer knew the guy was a polygamist and said, we're going to take him to trial for perjury and see what the heck he's doing. So they put him on trial and in the perjury of Brother Brown, the faithful Mormon explained that his testimony was not false because his adherence to polygamy was not a matter of his belief. His participation in polygamy was a matter of that he knew it was right. It wasn't a matter he believed it. He knew it was right. So in a court of law, he was capable of saying, I don't believe polygamy is true. I believe it. I know it's right. Do you get that? It's worth, and these semantical games, you meet an LDS missionary, you meet a self-appointed LDS apologist, you even talk to the apostles and listen to their public speech when they get interviewed on uh, television with Mike Wallace or any of these guys, they spin, they hair split, and they deny the truth still today because polygamy is still today part of the doctrine. They are just waiting for the time to practice it. Let's, with that, let's open up the phone lines. 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. LDS callers, please, first time callers, we love you. And please turn your television sets down as we are uh, talking to you. Now, uh, we're gonna go to a spot that talks to you about our partners program. It's an important program that keeps, keeps us balanced and moving forward. Check this out, we'll come back and take your phone calls. Hi, I'm Sean McCraney with Aletheia Ministry, producer of Heart of the Matter. We exist solely on the support of those who appreciate our efforts at reaching others with the saving message from Jesus Christ. We want to invite you, if you're so inclined, to come alongside with us, partner with us financially. Now, all uh, support and prayers are greatly appreciated, but Heart of the Matter Partners, or HOTM Partners, has been carefully designed to supply support for Aletheia Ministries' long-term sustainability without burdening individuals too much. On your screen is an address. You can write to partners there, ask information, whatever you want to do, we'll send you a brochure. Also, if you're interested, you can check us out at www.hotm.tv. Additionally, you can call us, 1-888-868-4686. All prayers, all support are appreciated. God bless you. See you Tuesdays. Hey, we're back. Thanks for joining us. We're going to Ken and Bountiful, first-time caller. Ken, you're on the air. Ken? Yes, sir. You're on the air, my friend. Okay. Is this uh, Sean? Is this is talking to me? This is Sean talking to you. Okay, Sean, a couple of questions I'd like to ask you here. About, oh, I think it was four or five weeks ago you were on the uh, television and a lady called in and asked about uh, your background and so forth, and you indicated that you had been on a mission. Is that right? That's true. And where did you serve and who was your mission president? I, ser I, served, with, uh, I served in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Same mission as uh, Eastern States, Bruce R. McConkie, my mission president. First was Robert H. Danes, 
And then he left after I was there about four months, and it became Gary L. Bunker, who's the, uh, who's the uh, prof who was now a retired professor of psychology at BYU. Okay. Now, you said that you served for about six months with, uh, as the assistant to the president? No, I served for uh, about a year almost as an assistant to Gary L. Bunker. You served with Gary Bunker. Yeah, as the assistant. Robert Daines was my first mission president, and then uh, Gary Bunker came in, and I served with him. I see. Okay. I, uh, I, Gary Bunker is a fantastic guy. I love him. Yeah? Yeah. I see. But you say you was his assistant for a year? About a year, yeah. Okay. Uh, I have a, have a question that I'd uh, like to have your take on, if you would. Sure. Uh, this is a letter that I found in the paper. It was a letter to Dear Abby. And she gets, uh, I guess, to my mind, right to the heart of the matter. And it's a letter from a Jewish girl. And she said, I was born Jewish. Three years ago, I converted to the Baptist religion. Last week, my cousin, a devout young Jewish woman, died a very slow and agonizing death. Everyone remembered her as a person who had never said an unkind word about anyone. I discussed her death with my minister, hoping to get some, some satisfaction and assurance that she was now in heaven. He said she is not in heaven because she did not believe in Jesus Christ. Abby, is this true? I was speechless. How would you answer this, Sean, a letter like this from a Jewish lady about her, her cousin who was not a Christian but was a good, wonderful Never said anything bad about anyone. Okay, I'm going to answer your question with several things. First and foremost, the goodness or wonderfulness of an individual does not matter according to Scripture because our works are, are as filthy rags before God and our hearts are all deceptive and who can know how evil they are? So in terms of her being a good woman who's never said a bad word, that is, might be fine, but what did she do? And so uh, what my point is, she was not without sin. Nobody is without sin, and you would probably agree with that. Absolutely. So then yeah. the question is, how are her sins fixed? This good woman, who I'm sure she was, a delightful woman. So how were those sins e removed or erased? There is the question. Now, second point, I would never be like that Baptist preacher and say she went to hell. How does he know what she knew? How does he have any idea what she believed? How does he know if in her last moments Jesus didn't come to her by the Holy Spirit and she didn't confess him? We also know that according to the Bible, God speaks to us through nature. He speaks to us through the law written on our hearts. We don't know. We also know from Scripture that a Jewish woman has had a blindness placed over her eyes, according to Paul, so that the Gentiles could receive the gospel. So my, how I would respond to this is we don't know. But what we do know is this. You do not go to heaven without the blood of Jesus Christ saving you. And we do not know if this woman knew Jesus or not. And we leave it in an omnipotent, beautiful God's hands to decide. That's how I would answer it. Okay, but now let's, let, let's just take this another step further. Okay. In the world today, we're all God's creation. We're his children. No, we're not. And he said, and there's about 75% of the world today who are not Christians. Yeah. Not Christian. And it tells us all through the Bible that God is a God of love. He's a God of 
of uh, a just God. He is. He loves all of us. And I think Paul says in, in Acts or Corinthians, that God is no respecter of persons. And he loves us all. Sure. Does it sound like a just God, who is the God of love, would would turn his back and not give an opportunity to close to 75 percent of the people, the children, his creations on this world? That just God did give an opportunity, and that just God sent his only son, who took on the sins of this entire world and bore the wrath of God for those sins. If the 75% seek truth, then they will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. Where they are in terms of what they've received, again, is up to God's business. But I got to make a clarification here, Ken. You stated, and it's very popular to say this today, that God, he, we are all his children, okay? I want you to know that the Bible, and this is my manual, it says that we are creations. So are giraffes, elephants, and monkeys. We are creations. And then in John it says, but as many receive Jesus, then he gave the power to become the sons of God. It is through Jesus that we become God's children and no other way. So Jesus also said, in relative to your point, Ken, straight is the gate, narrow is the way, and few be there that find it. Wide is the gate to destruction. Jesus did not preach this ecumenical, the world is so beautiful, full of wonderful people, would a just God send them to hell? A just God didn't even have to take care of the sin. He could have wiped us all out and had justification for it. But because he loved us, he sent his son who offered his life and makes a way for everybody. Does that help? That helps. Let me, there's still one, one issue that I want to share with you. And this is from 1 Peter. Okay. And it tells us in 1 Peter, I think this is about the third, uh, third chapter. It says, for Christ also once suffered for sin. The just, the just for the, the unjust. Now, he's the just. He was not suffering for his sins because he had none. He was suffering for mine that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but that quickened by the Spirit, by which he went and preached unto the spirits in prison that sometimes were disobedient. Amen. And he goes on and he says, During the long suffering of God, during the days of Noah, wherein few souls, that is eight, were saved by water. Okay, that's, that's true. And then he goes on and says, in the next, in verse 5 of 4, he says, Who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? Or for this cause was the gospel preached unto them that are dead, right. that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, and, and live, live according, according to God, to God in, the in the Spirit. So right. here, the spirits go to prison, go to the spirit world, okay. and the gospel is preached to them that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. Okay, Ken? We're going to have Ken? an opportunity Ken? to hear Ken? the gospel Ken? in the no. spirit world. Ken, that is a, what you just added is a gigantic Joseph Smithian leap. Let me say why. Jesus, in the, while, the, while they waited, while in the days of Noah, it says, we are talking about everybody pre-Jesus ascending into the heavens. We are talking about all the Old Testament who lived faithfully. They went to Sheol. This was a, a word for hell, actually. And there was a paradise in Sheol, and there was a prison in Sheol. Now, it would be an unjust God who took all of those who were in prison, who never knew Jesus, and said, you're gone. This God, he said, I, 
I am going to, I am going to go down when I die, and I'm going to teach those who are in Sheol what, who I am. They're going to see that I am the fulfillment of the prophecy. Okay? We know that there is a gulf between heaven and hell by virtue of what the, Jesus taught in his um, parable of Lazarus. Lazarus. What are they doing there? That's the key. The they could. They had no access to the Father, Ken, because the blood of Jesus. The, the blood. No, no, no. The, no, no. They had no. They had no access to the Father because the blood of Jesus had not been shed. They were set, kept separate from God until Jesus. And so, when the blood of Jesus was shed, Jesus went to prison after he was crucified, and he taught them who he was. That's a just God. There's no problem. But that has nothing to do. Nothing to do with people today having the light of truth, the light came to this world for Jesus to come, his Holy Spirit to come descending 50 days later to testify of the truth for nature, for our eyes to be open to the mysteries of God. That has nothing to do with now we have to do vicarious works and believe that missionaries are going into the dead and preaching to them so that they can go to heaven. That's a complete construct of man. And so, there is, so there is preaching going on in the spirit world they're being taught the gospel so that they can be judged according to men in the flesh. No, that did happen when Jesus went and preached to them. That did happen to all those who lived before Jesus came, lived, and died. What about the 75% uh, of the world today? I think that, I answered that. Are that. Not I, I think I answered that. No, I don't think you did because those people are in the same boat as the ones that were born after during the time of Noah or before or after. Read the book of Romans, chapter 1. It tells you that they're not. God says that he has taken and he has planted his law. There's seven different ways in Scripture that, G that God reveals himself to people. They will be judged according to what they've been given, and it is by the grace of, uh, of Jesus Christ through his blood that those who have been kept out and aloof and didn't know but did believe in a higher power will be saved. I do not believe, and I don't believe any Bible-knowing Christian has ever believed that the aborigine who is born in the dirt, he grows up to be six years old and is hit by a, a flying eagle, goes to hell. They believe that by the grace of God, According to what they have been given, they will be judged. Okay, so even though they haven't accepted or don't know Jesus at all in the mortal situation, they're still going to go to heaven. If they respond to what they have been given that testifies of Jesus. And let me tell you the beauty of this whole thing, Ken. This is the beauty of the whole thing. If Jesus was the key not being God, you would have a point you would be able to win this discussion right now and say, you have to have that name of Jesus. But Jesus is God. And so when the aborigine looks to heavens and says, there is a God, I know it. Who is he? Show, them, show him to me. He is testifying of Jesus too. But if you take Jesus away from the Godhood and you say his name has to absolutely be included for the aborigine, then you would have a problem. But because Jesus is God and the heart can respond to God and what's been given, we can have salvation by, it's not aside from his name, it's only through his name, but it is through him. Does that make any sense to you? Oh yes, and, but, but it also says, Peter also teaches that, that, that no prophecy of the scriptures is of any private interpretation. Nobody should the listen. The prophecy came not in old times by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I just thought about see, that. And I... what you're doing is you're putting a spin on this. You're putting your spin on it, on how you 
I'm trying to interpret. No. That's the problem with Christianity today. There's 500 plus different spins, different churches. Well, you know what? And, and, and they're all putting in who says that yeah. our spin is the right spin versus somebody in the Presbyterian Ken? or the Catholic or Ken? whatever. Okay, Ken, you've made that point. Now, let me explain something. We're going to move on with the calls, okay? Jesus did not bring a, a brick building down with him. Jesus says, and the scriptures say throughout, that the building is not made of stone, made with hands. It's made of believers. There are core issues which all believers uh, assent to. And now, there is a certain type of person, Ken, and you may be one of them, who wants to have someone tell them exactly what they need to think and believe all the way to the letter. And that's why cults proliferate in this world. Because they are systematic. They're the McDonald's of religion. No matter where you go, it's the same. And they say that comfortability means truth. God is a diverse God. He made so many different animals. He made all of us different. Our fingerprints are all different. He is diverse. He is not this monolithic God where he has this system. Jesus opened the way to the bond, to the free, to the male, to the female, to the black, Ken, to the white, to everybody. He opened the way. And it is belief in him. And so you, sir, are actually the one who has stepped out and you have privately interpreted scripture and believed a bunch of men who have told you what it should say. Well, Open the book yourself. Your interpretation and your spin is better than anybody else's out there, better than mine. No, but it's better else. than yours. Uh, it's you definitely that, better than yours. You All right, man, Jesus, I got to hit it. We've talked long enough. Geez, just one last thing. Jesus, you said, did not bring down a big brick building. He did not. But he did organize the church, build upon a foundation of apostles and the and prophets. I just talked he about being that, Ken. The chief cornerstone. Ken, I just talked about that. Read it in context, my brother. You're just proving yourself it, now it, a fool. Don't put the spin on. You're, you're spinning this I'm not thing spinning. way out Read of, it way in out context. of uh, Read what it, it in really context. says. Ken, how many times do you build a foundation for a house? How many times have I built a foundation for a house? How many I've times? only built one house, and okay. that's... Uh, how, many how many times do you build a foundation? Hopefully it's only once. That's right. And the one time was the prophets and the apostles who were first-time witnesses of Christ. Upon that foundation, Ken, the church is built. You act like that foundation needs to get ripped up every single time your, your prophet or apostle dies and replace it with some new guy who claims to be it, and he's not. Didn't it's a foundation, Judas? Ken. It doesn't did, move. Did they replace Judas when he, was, uh, when he uh, fell and killed himself? It's a great question. Well, they did, and so that's exactly, that was the foundation of who, the church then and who, it is today. Who too. did they replace Judas with? Matthias, was it? Yeah, and Matthias was what? And the what? He, Matthias was what? He was a, one uh, of the twelve apostles who witnessed for Jesus Christ. He was a witness of Jesus Christ because Acts tells us they found a man who knew and all the teachings that Jesus had given and had been a first-hand witness. Ken, you have men sitting up there that work for IBM that are calling themselves apostles who have never seen Jesus. They don't even know his word. How They're liars. Know? How do you know? You, that's your interpretation. Because if they knew, they would say to your church, we have seen him. Oh, no, no, they would not. That because it's so sacred, sacred now, right? That is so sacred. They You're would such not a, say it's that. It's a con, dude. It's a, Jesus never did that. He had first-hand witnesses so that those first-hand witnesses could come out and say, we've seen the nails. We've touched the side. We've seen his miracles. No, no, That's why he chose 12. Ken, these have. men are lying to you. Yeah. Well, We're done, my brother. Here comes Paul. 
and uh, he saw the Savior, didn't he? He did. He was a first-hand witness. He became an apostle. First-hand witness. And, and actually, the, Paul, in my opinion, my opinion, he was really the apostle that should have placed, replaced Judas when he was killed. Matthias was put in because those guys got anxious, and they no, replaced no, no. him quickly. I believe that this is just my side thing, but I think Paul was the real guy. Because you never hear anything about Matthias again, but the one God called, he really brought up a lot of what was supposed to happen. Ken, we're ending Jesus it. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Matthias Ken, the other you're going to drone on and on, and that's it. We're done. Thank you for the call, though. God bless you. All right, we are going to Shane and oh, I'm sorry, but that was good. We're going to Shane and Norm. Shane, you're in Heart of the Matter. Sean, how you doing, man? Woo! Doing well. How are you? Oh, good, dude. I'm enjoying this. Uh, I'm enjoying this last caller with Ken. It's kind of interesting to see all this and kind of, you know, get the views of everyone in the world. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm not gonna lie. I'm a strong LDS uh, man, so don't take that against me, okay? I won't. I did serve my uh, mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, a lot of lot of love to those people. A lot of love for anyone that was Baptist or Christian or, or Jehovah's Witness was a really big one out there that, that I've learned so much from and I've grown so much from. But I have an interesting question for you that, that always kind of baffles me, okay? Yeah. Whenever, you know, you go to like the temple, you know when you go to like the temple, and, or not temple, but to like the conference centers and everything, what do you always see outside the conference centers when, when people are going to the conference centers? You see the protesters. You see them all out there. Let me ask you something that's really hardening to me because I've, I've been through, you have no idea in my life, I am one who believes in the Lord more than you can ever fathom. I know he's real. I know that he loves me, and I know that he loves you. Okay. But it's very hard for me to see this knowing that Christ, if he was here now, you would not see him on TV opening up a whole bunch of their past. Or let's talk about your past. I'm sure if we open a book of your past, there would be some skeletons in there that we probably don't want to know about. I and will tell you any of them. Guys are, guys are people, are men. Brigham Young was a man. Joseph Smith, okay. even though he was... Shane, you know, Shane, we have to... Shane, Shane I, 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 let me just respond to this so that we can keep it a dialogue instead of a monologue, okay? Okay. The reason that my personal life is irrelevant to this is because my personal life, I have not made it a doctrine of Jesus Christ. The things we go into within... But, 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 but you are. On t no, you are. You do. No, You're doing no, it right now. No, 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 no. Now, wait. You have to understand that polygamy was a doctrine. That was a doctrine that Joseph said God authored. Okay. Therefore, you are going to explore that when they say God is the author of it. Okay. And I, I respect what you're saying, but okay. now you're going off the page here. I'm talking about, do you really think that Christ, if he was upon this earth, would sit in a, in a building or a room and find fault in all of his kids. Okay, let me what ask you this. That? Okay, you that was a question. A, no, 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 you call yourself a Christian. No, wait, now you're getting accusatory. Now let me answer your question. Okay, but did, did, What did Jesus say? What did Jesus call the Pharisees and Sadducees? Uh, Shane? What did he, what, what was he calling what, them? What, what, what did he refer to them as? Vipers, children okay. of the devil. Did he love them, though? I love the LDS, uh, Shane. See, the problem is, is you're just taking methods and you're trying to assign them to Jesus as though no, all he did now was. You, now you're changing it again. Look, I respect. I'm you not for tainting your views. anything, I love Shane. Your program because I'm very. 
Shane, I'm Shane. I'm staying on your topics you. with Let me you. Tell you something. It all comes down to one thing. What's that? Christ lives. He loves us all. Even the devils believe. I understand that, but I know in my heart that he doesn't appreciate. I, I just know you don't see LDS people, and you, you bash on our prophets, and you bash on the prophets. You don't see Elder Iring walking down to other people's churches Stop. and stand outside Shane? and preaching to them that Shane? they are wrong. Shane, me, that is Shane, you just do. my turn. Not a monologue, a dialogue. Your missionaries go and knock on doors. They have, I did they have, it. You know, but they don't, they, yeah, see, but now you're turning it again. They don't have the, they don't sit there and bash on people when they open the door. Hey, Shane, by the way, you're wrong. Shane, you're going to hell. stop now. Let me say something. <laughs> they will bash on everybody. Insane that all the churches were corrupt. Their creeds. I said the mission. Wait, you're I interrupting me. me. I turned, I, I Shane, Baptist church. I tell you, I heard Shane, a preacher one time of a Catholic church Shane, that was the most amazing. That's not the, the point. Most amazing sermon I ever heard of, and he was amazing, and he was leaving. Catholic. So don't tell me that all the LDS okay. missionaries go out and bash because they don't. I was Shane, so impressed and Shane, intrigued. Now listen, I was so impressed Shane, and intrigued with this guy. Shane. My point is, the missionaries, I didn't say bash, you use that word. They go in and they say that all Christian churches were corrupt. They say that they're in the employment of the devil. The temple films show, at least when I went through, Satan in the actual employment, uh, employing uh, Baptist and, and Protestant preachers. You have, I, have, I have tons of quotes from UTLM.org that I can quote that talk about all the horrific things that Mormon leaders, apostles throughout the ages have said about Christianity. It's only in the recent years that they've suddenly tried to be uh, so ecumenical and loving to her, and we're Christian too because they want to put someone in office and they're looking for world power. But Shane, you were decimated in that conversation. Because you kept throwing things out, and when I would answer them, you escalated in your emotions, saying you knew in your heart, but your heart is jack. Your heart doesn't mean anything. What we have to rely on are facts, Shane. And the facts are the missionaries attack Christianity first. They drew first blood, and now they're getting it back in spades. And it's something Jesus did do. Let's go to Wendy and Logan. Uh, Wendy, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes. Hi, Wendy. You're on the air. Okay. You're on the air, Wendy. Oh, great. I am. I just muted my TV. Yeah. Yep, this is Wendy, and I just wanted to make a comment. Mm -hmm. um, I'm from Logan, and uh, my, um, you know, I'm a Christian, and we moved here about 14 years ago, and my daughter, our only daughter, had converted about eight years ago and married in the temple, and, um, you know, um, was very painful, but we have a very good relationship, a very loving relationship, and she is a very faithful, practicing Mormon, and I'm a very faithful, practicing Christian. And, um, you know, as a mother, I could not love uh, the Mormon people any more than I love my daughter and my grandchildren. Mm -hmm. You know, so I just want you to know, as from a Christian perspective, I do love the Mormon people. Okay. And so, um, you know, we try to... Um, do some things uh, occasionally, go back and forth. You know, I've got, been to my grandchildren's, you know, Wendy, uh, blessing. Got, Wendy, we yes. got to get to the point because we're running out okay, of time. Okay, well, I just wanted to tell you, I went with my daughter. She invited me to go to, um, the, in February, the Relief Society uh, Sisters Conference. Yeah. 
and I went to that conference with her, and the agreement was that the next weekend she was going to come with me to the Christian women's luncheon with all of the Christian women from the different congregations here in the valley, yeah. and she went with that. But we, I said, you choose which workshops you want to go to, and I'll just go along. And we went to this one workshop she chose, and it was called Our Marriage Warranty, and the speaker was this gentleman, Glenn Jensen. He was a former member of the Logan Central State Presidency and released as the area quickly, quickly, Wendy. Okay. Well, sh anyway, and in his in his presentation, he was quoting uh, from the Doctrine and Covenants 132. So this is a current teaching. And my daughter said, "Oh, Mom, I'm so sorry." I didn't know he was going to be talking about this. And I said, well, this is your doctrine. I know it is. So, you know. Yeah. So they are currently speaking out of Doctrine and Covenants 132. Excellent call, Wendy. I appreciate it so much. God bless you, my sister. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Story of a young man in the obituaries today in the newspaper. I had a call from a friend who knew of this man. He was a returned missionary, still active in the LDS church. He uh, had obviously attended, a temp attended the temple, went through, uh, believed in Mormonism, and he went to southern Utah, and he, um, he killed himself. He was in the obituary. Why? Well, he left a note about why he killed himself, and it seems that he had some substance abuse issues. And he was so guilty, so guilty about the fact that he would abuse some substances, and in the note he wrote, I'm, Mom, I'm sorry, it wasn't hard alcohol, it was only beer. That he decided he could not go on with the conflict of what holiness was and what his body was doing. And he killed himself, 23, 24 years old, in the obituaries today. This is what we fight against, my friends. This bondage, this baloney, that they throw on people's heads. We live in a fallen world. We have a sin nature, and there's only one solution to it that will bring peace, that will give you uh, liberty, that will release you from the chains that hold you bound. And that is a belief in Jesus and Jesus alone, that he is the author and finisher of your faith, that you believe on him, that you cannot please God by anything but your faith and that you believe on him, and then what he does is he says, let me tell you something, I know you have trouble with drinking beer, my friend, and I can help you with that. And in time, he starts helping you with it, and then he fills you with his spirit that allows you to do even better works. And pretty soon, you start loving more, and you start sharing more, and giving more, and helping people who are indigent, and all the things, instead of putting those things first as a burden, Jesus allows you to do it. And it is a tragedy that anybody would take their life because they can't seem to measure up to some laws that men are say have to be met in order to be worthy before God. Jesus gives you your worthiness. He gives you life. We hope you'll remember that and join us next week here on Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face to face. See you then.
my rusty cage and run I'm gonna break I'm gonna break my Gonna break my rusty cage and run I'm gonna break I'm gonna break my Gonna break my rusty cage 